Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. again it continues to be the 21st of september which listener Lori has noted is in the song september by earth wind and fire so Lori, although we will not be playing that version i now have noted it to everyone so there you go um all right so what's going on we're gonna we're gonna take a look at the headlines this morning first we're gonna go wide and then we're gonna go deep so yes for those of you now singing deep and wide deep and wide deep and wide there's a fountain flowing deep and wide Welcome back to Vacation Bible School, Carmen Edition. All right. The world and everything in it would be the place where we would start. The United Nations General Assembly got underway yesterday in New York. Here was what I found most unusual about the news coming out of the U.N. Um, The major news worldwide, like the thing that most people around the world watched, listened to, and shared on social media Remember, this is the General Assembly meeting of the United Nations, and they have big things to discuss, uh, big, big international crises and issues. What consumed social media in, and media in relationship to the opening of the United Nations General Assembly? Well, this might give you a little clue, might give both of us a little clue into what the world cares about. It was the K-pop band. BTS. Millions of people watched and have now shared on social media South Korea's special envoys representing the welcome generation. I don't know what that is, but I'm now going to look it up. Uh, During which this K-pop band, for those of you who don't know what K-pop is, I don't really either. Um, It's a genre of music and BTS. Um. Say it's just Korean pop. That's it. Yes, it's Korean pop. Korean pop. Yeah. Mm. Thanks, Paul, being being our resident music person. So they made a speech, followed by their appointment as special envoys for the future generation and culture. And um, yeah, there you go. They also danced down the aisle. That would be a segment on social media that has been shared millions and millions and millions of times. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a cultural commentary, and I will just leave it at that. We don't take enough things as seriously as we should, and we take other things entirely too seriously. American allies remain trapped in Afghanistan as the Taliban has not only solidified its control, but is actually now functioning more and more as a government. They have reinstated Sharia law. They are forbidding women to work or travel without a male escort. Uh, and there is l- there are a number of headlines related to how and when the Taliban is going to allow girls to go back to school, particularly those who are of high school age. Um, they're not going to allow women to serve in positions of leadership. Um, so there you go. Other uh, Afghanistan news. This falls into the category of we've all done this. 
But this headline is horrific in its potential implications. So you've all we've all done this. We have all copied email addresses into the to line of an email or into the CC carbon copy box of an email instead of the BCC block, the blind carbon copy block. We've all done it. In this case, the mistake uh, proved to be a death sentence. The, the UK's Ministry of Defense shared information in an email because of where they put the addresses of the people to whom the email was sent. The Ministry of Defense of the UK shared information about 250 Afghani interpreters in an email, who they are, how to find them. Um, let's be praying for, and it's just, it's just horrific. What's coming is awful. Um, and so let's not take our eye off of Afghanistan, even as most of the world turns its attention elsewhere. Um, I found one uh, article in the Wall Street Journal really fascinating in relationship to our withdrawal from Afghanistan and sort of how we ended up here. It's a very, very interesting take on where and why America lost not only in Afghanistan, but why we are losing America as well. And it's happening, according to this one person's uh, take on it, because of how we are and are not educating young men in America today. So that is an interesting piece that you might uh, you might turn your attention to in the Wall Street Journal. All right. We are going to turn our attention to some additional headlines here in the U.S. um, at the southern border in the Supreme Court and talk about life and death. One obituary in the L.A. Times. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're going to have a little leftover segment here this morning uh, because we have so many headlines to work our way through. Here in the United States, the Supreme Court is going to hear the abortion case that could overturn Roe v. Wade. Supreme Court is going to hear arguments December the 1st in the case from Mississippi, testing whether or not all state laws that ban pre-viability abortions are unconstitutional. So the case is called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. So you're probably going to hear it referred to as Dobbs v. Jackson. Uh, Mississippi is asking the Supreme Court to review the quote-unquote viability standard. So the viability standard is what was, you know, created, uh, it's just, I mean, like out of nothing, by the Supreme Court in the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, And viability, obviously, has the point in time that a person can live outside of the womb has changed as medical technology has advanced. And so uh, Mississippi is arguing that the viability standard um, prevents states from defending maternal health and its interest in protecting life. And so we will see this is the first time that the Supreme Court has agreed to take a case that is a, a direct um, confrontation with the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. So those arguments are December the 1st. We will be uh, watching that uh, closely. The crisis at the U.S. southern border continues. Um, and so for those of you who um, were asking, I mean, I got I got texts about, you know, where how did all of these um, Haitians end up at the U.S. southern border? Some 15,000 
people have crossed the U.S. southern border at Del Rio. Many of them, the overwhelming majority of them, are Haitian. Here's what um, I did not say about those Haitians when we talked about this the very first time. So it's not like they left Haiti and flew to the U.S. southern border or left Haiti, you know, last week and made their way to the U.S. southern border. These are people largely who left Haiti in 2010 and and in subsequent years, fleeing all of the, the challenges that that nation uh, faces. It is the most impoverished country in the Western Hemisphere, and people leave Haiti all the time. And so this flow of migrants is largely um, from, from Haitians who left Haiti a fairly long time ago, have not lived in Haiti for a long time, and uh, have been living in South America and Central America. And because the southern border was understood to be open, they migrated there basically together in large groups. And so um, what is happening now is uh, the United States is putting them on airplanes, particularly those who are single young men arriving on their own without a family. They are putting them on airplanes and guess where they are sending them? Well, they are sending them back to Haiti, a place where most of them have never lived in their adult lives. Um, Many of them left Haiti as children, and they are now being returned to a country that they do not know, where they have no resources and no family members, and where they do not speak the language any longer. So it uh, it is a crisis upon a crisis upon a crisis. So the immigration conversation is one we are going to delve into later this week with our friend Matthew Sorens. Um. There's an obituary in the L.A. Times that has been shared on social media really broad, broadly, um, and it has become a bit of an Internet phenomenon. In August, Karen Sido um, and her brother Eric were picnicking at Lake Balboa Park in the San Fernando Valley, um, and it would be their final time together. And there's a 189-word obituary entitled A Special Sister. Um, 189 words is not very many. And so let's just read it. December 9, 1959, September 5, 2021. A special sister. In memory of my sister, who never had wants or misgivings. She was born with cerebral palsy. She could never speak more than three words. Mom, Donald's, by which she meant McDonald's, and piano. She loved music. The past two years with COVID made seeing her beyond difficult, and only recently were we getting back to normal. Our father passed in 2007, our mother earlier this year in May. In my last outing with Karen, we took a sunny bike ride. She laughed. She clapped her hands. When we stopped by the lake for picnic lunch, Karen said, Mom, Mom. I just told her, told her, Mom is not here anymore. Karen totally out of the norm, put her head on my shoulder. Tears ran down her cheek. She understood. Two weeks later, she passed away. I think she really wanted to be with Mom. Karen, I wish I could have made you laugh one more time. I needed you, too. Love your brother, Eric. And then he says, thank you to all that helped in Karen's care for so many years at Valley Village and Tierra del Sol. How we serve and live 
with those who cannot make a life for themselves is largely the measure of a life. We'll be right back. All right, maybe you're like me and every once in a while you just need a really good cry. There is an art installation uh, in the Washington Mall. So if you think about uh, pictures that you've seen, maybe you have visited Washington, D.C., and you know the distance between the White House and the Washington Monument, and you know that big, green, grassy area at the at, just sort of sits beneath the Washington Monument and surrounds it in every direction. Um, so that is the palette, the canvas, I guess that's the canvas, upon which some nearly 700,000 little white flags have now been placed. They are placed 10 inches apart, and they cover acre after acre after acre. Each one of them, well, many of them, bear a name. Many of them do not yet bear a name, but that's sort of in process. Uh, They represent every individual American who has died of COVID. And so as the number of of Americans who have died of COVID-19 surpasses the U.S. death toll of the uh, flu pandemic in 1918 and 1919, this installation of tiny little white flags is going to continue to grow. The pictures um, and people are reflecting online about the loved ones that uh, that they have lost. And so I'd encourage you to check that out if you need a good cry. Um, I want to talk briefly here about gossip and living with the consequences of what you choose to say and do. I thought that um, what we heard at the break, I guess maybe only some of us heard um, at the break, um, the invitation to consider gossip and its power. So I read the story of Perez Hilton. Now, I got to confess to you, I I didn't even know who Perez Hilton was before I read the article. But apparently, Perez Hilton is the world's most notorious gossip blogger. And Perez Hilton has made a name for himself. Let's just start right there. That uh, That is what is said of this individual. He has made a name for himself, which should immediately take us back to the conversation in Genesis about the people who wanted to make a name for themselves instead of making the name of God great. So there you go. Uh, Perez Hilton has made a name for himself by, here you go, mocking and sensationalizing personal, often intimate issues in the lives of celebrities. Uh, He's described in the Times as being in the business of, quote, the demolition of others' reputations. His past behavior uh, pretty much lines up with that description. Um, He attacked individuals while they were battling alcoholism. He made fun of people who were battling um, anorexia. Uh, He he talked about a person who ultimately committed suicide um, by making fun of her name. Um, and he's coming under recent fire because of the things that he has said in relationship to Britney Spears, who apparently was in the crosshairs of his gossip column frequently. And and he says now, well, I don't expect anyone to forgive me. I don't expect forgiveness. 
Um, in fact, he says that, um, you know, I spared no one. I don't expect anyone to spare me. There are even those who consider me unredeemable, beyond redemption. I want to pause right there and, and answer that first question. And then I want to circle back around to how he made, how he has made his life, what he has made of his life and his living. Um, first of all, no one is beyond redemption. No one is irredeemable. Even those who spared no one. Um, are covered, are covered by the blood of Christ. And so let us be people who extend the grace of the gospel to everyone, even those whom we consider to be beyond the pale of being saved. Now, having said that, let me um, address this. The issue is not just Perez Hilton. Who supplies him with all the information that he was using for fodder for his gossip blog? And who was demanding that? I mean, who who was buying that? Who was paying for that? I mean, why is it that we want to share the hardest parts of the lives of those who have taken us into their confidence? Like, what's wrong with us? Yes, this guy has a wretched career. But like people who traffic in pornography or people who traffic in people, there's clearly a market for what they're selling. And there are clearly those participating in supplying them with what they need to do what they ultimately do. And so as Christians, I want us to consider our participation in the gossip column industry online or in print why we are attracted to it. Proverbs 20, verse 19, whoever goes about slandering and revealing secrets, don't associate with them. They are simply babblers. Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Romans 1, 29, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Frankly, they are gossips. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Lots and lots of texts of Scripture in relationship to gossip and gossiping. So let me uh, encourage us to look in the mirror today and uh, consider, consider our own role or our own participation in supplying the private information of those who have taken us into their confidence, even as, quote-unquote, prayer concerns. If somebody didn't give you permission to share it, then it's a confidence between you and them and the Lord. Yes, take it to the Lord in prayer, but don't take it to anyone else. All right, we're going to take a very uh, brief pause uh, for break point, and then we're going to have a great conversation in the next half hour about even if faith. Even if, even if God does not save us from the fiery furnace, even if. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When's the last time you considered the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We worship the same God. We call upon the same Holy Spirit. We walk through the same fires, similar at least. Even if 
trusting God when life disappoints, overwhelms, or just doesn't make sense. That is the topic of Mitchell Lee's new book. He'll be with us next. This is Max Lakato. Wait on the Spirit. If Peter and the apostles needed his help, don't we? They walked with Jesus for three years, heard his preaching, and saw his miracles. They saw the body of Christ buried in the grave and raised from the dead. They witnessed his upper room appearance and heard his instruction. Had they not received the best possible training? Weren't they ready? Yet Jesus told them to wait on the Spirit. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, the Holy Spirit. Learn to wait, to be silent, to listen for His voice. Cherish stillness. Sensitize yourself to His touch. And just think, you don't need a thing. You've got it all. All God's gifts right in front of you as you wait expectantly for our Master Jesus to arrive on the scene. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. Mitchell Lee joins us now. He's the lead pastor of Grace Community Church. It is a thriving multi-ethnic fellowship in Fulton, Maryland. Uh, Mitchell is also the author of the book we're going to talk about today, Even If trusting God when life disappoints, overwhelms, or just doesn't make sense. Mitchell, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. So I attend a Grace Community Church as well, uh, the one ah. I attended. I know. So there you go. Um, so I love that. So let's, um, let's start here. Um, tell us about your mom's deli and the way God used Daniel 3 in your life. My goodness, yeah. Um, so... You know, I was uh, I had such great potential, I thought, and I was getting ready to be launched into ministry. I just finished seminary, and quite unexplainably, uh, the month before I graduated from seminary, my senior pastor called me into his office and heard that I wanted to go on to do some further studies, and so he had hired my replacement and was simply letting me know. And I went from uh, that March going into graduation jobless. I was out of the church. I was wondering, what am I going to do? What did I do? Why did life go this way? And I found myself doing only what I, what I could do, which was help my mom out at her deli. And I was managing her deli with all of this theological, robust knowledge in my head. I was making sandwiches and caring for customers. I really felt like God had passed me by, that something had disqualified me from his kingdom work, at least in the local church where I thought my vocation was. And in the midst of that, uh, I actually was a radio broadcast, um, and it was a little bit, a little soundbite about Daniel 3, about these two words, even if. And the actual point of the radio broadcast was that, you know, we don't know our scriptures today, and so we wouldn't today know where that, that those two words came from. And I was like, where are those two words coming from? And I was studying more in Daniel 3, and, and these, the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, really changed my my view of who God was. I, I realized I'd gone into this. My relationship with God had been based on what He was going to do for me, and all of these these the promises of my potential that I was going to serve His kingdom for. And it was about a year and a half in this wilderness of a deli, working through and coming to understand that God's goodness is actually even more deep than what He's done for me lately. 
Your mom, could we talk just a, a little bit about her? Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, a couple of thoughts maybe on your mom's early life and then um, on your early exposure to Christianity. Yeah, sure. My mom and dad, uh, they immigrated from South Korea in 1974. I was born in 1975. My dad did not come from a um, uh, a believing family. My mom did. So my dad was actually the first believer uh, in on his side of the family. And we, I remember going to a, a small little Korean immigrant church uh, at the age of six and hearing this gospel and getting giving my life, surrendering, asking Jesus into my heart at the age of eight, and then doing it again at the age of nine and 10, just to make sure I was getting my bases covered. Um, and I grew up in that church. And actually, that's the church that uh, fired me, which made it even more uh, devastating to me at that point when I was graduating seminary. My mom and dad are heroes. They are absolutely, they've, uh, throughout our upbringing, they've really demonstrated this determination and resolve to worship God no matter what came. And, and we definitely had a lot of ups and downs. So I love that, and I suspect that um, Calvin, Noah, Benjamin, Beatrice, and Owen, who uh, I have come to find out are your five kids, um, I imagine that that what they are learning at uh, their grandma's knee, their grandpa's knee, is similar in some ways to what you learned, which is that, you know, God loves you, and God has a plan for you, and God wants to be in a relationship with you. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the assumptions that we make the childhood assumptions that we make that we then have to rethink because the life that God invites us into, the future filled with hope that God has for us is not always, you know, like a path littered with, you know, like flower blossoms. Yeah. Um, and so true. So, so can you talk so a little true. bit about that? Yeah. You know, in, in even in raising up our, our kids, we've, of course, you know, the job of every parent is to protect their kids, but it's not to make them safe. And, you know, this is one of the things that I, I realized in the, in the history of the way that God deals with us is he, he protects his people. He promises his protection for his people, that he'll, his presence with his people. But if you look at the history of his people, like life was never easy. Uh, they were never quite safe. And, and what we've tried to do with our, with our kids in, in raising them and, and trying to teach them this resilience that life is hard. We've never tried to shield them from the idea of life being hard. So, you know, four years ago when my dad passed away, uh, we were very open with our grief with our kids. Um, we wanted them to see that we grieve with hope, but that we grieve nonetheless. And it's little things like this that we're saying, yes, God loves you. Yes, God uh, has a plan for your life, but life is hard. It will bring twists. It will bring uh, all sorts of unexpected things but God will be with you in it. And that's the message we've really tried to impart uh, to our children. We are talking with Mitchell Lee. He is the, among other things, he's so many things. It always sounds so strange to just describe someone as an author, but you are the author of this book. The book is Even If Trusting God When Life Disappoints, Overwhelms, or Just Doesn't Make Sense. It's really um, excellent, and we are giving away copies today. If you'd like to enter the drawing for the copies we have here in studio just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, even if, what if, counter ifs, can you wander around a little bit in um, in all of that? Sure. You know, the, the easiest way to think about counter ifs is 
we all have a expectation, dream, hope of the way that we believe life should be or will be. And oftentimes the reality is very different from that. And it's in that gap between the reality of what we live and the, and the hopes and the expectations of what we wanted. It's in that gap that we have the opportunity to declare even if, gosh, even if my reality is not what I wanted, Lord, I know that you are good. I know I can trust you. <clears throat> but so often, instead of the even if, we employ, make use of, I mean, just really as a way of survival, we employ what I call counter ifs. And there's three types of counter ifs. There's the conditions that we put on God or we think God puts on us. This idea of the only if, only if God, you do such and such, will you be good and will I worship you? Or there's the regrets, the if only, if only something had been different. And whether it's in the past or even in my present now, we can live in the shadow of these regrets. And then the third one is this idea of the what if, and it's where our imagination goes into a thousand different scenarios of, uh, well, if I take this step and what's going to happen here, and we almost are trying to hedge our bets or protect God, so to speak, by our contingency plans that we put around our life. And it can actually, all three of those things can really leave us stuck and paralyzed. Uh, I've, I haven't seen people necessarily walk away from faith in God because of the counter ifs, but they put God in a nice box and they kind of go along with their, uh, what they know the real strength of their life is their own will, their own ability. And they kind of just call on God when they when they feel really desperate. And I'm just saying there could be a different way. There's a different way to trust in God's goodness and declare even if instead of our counter if. I, I felt like the um, the only if conversation was almost like I was in a position to obligate God to me and to my plans mm. versus surrendering mm. to him and his plans. Can you talk a little bit? Oh, well, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, will you talk a little bit about surrender Um, and what that really means. All right, so that conversation up next with Pastor Mitchell Lee. We're talking about his new book, Even If, Trusting God When Life Disappoints, Overwhelms, or Just Doesn't Make Sense. We'll be right back. All right. Thank you for the observations you're making on the text line. I appreciate how thoroughly uh, engaged you are with Daniel chapter three and with the conversation that we are having um, this morning uh, with Mitchell Lee about his brand new book, Even If. If you're interested in entering the drawing for one of the copies we have to give away this morning, just go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, so these guys who end up in the fiery furnace, who we know from Daniel chapter six as Matt, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have given names as well, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They have already surrendered. Um, uh, they are captives of a foreign um, nation, and they surrender to God with a whole heart. Talk with us about surrendering to God. Yeah, and, and let's think about just the context for, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's surrender. They, they stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, and the Even If Declaration is in two parts. There's this confidence in God's goodness. Our God can save us from the fire. And then the Even If turn comes, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship any other God. And if you think about the context of these three young men, where did their confidence come from in that it was their city that God handed over, Jerusalem, so that they ended up in this place in in the, in the first place. 
And so that really, really set me in a, in a direction of asking God, what, what is beneath this sort of confidence and this sort of resolve? And how does surrender like this really happen? The first thing I would like to point out is that surrender is an active choice. It is an active decision we make. It is not passive. And, and passive is the idea of resignation. You just resigned the quesera, quesera. It's a, it's a, it's a, a fatalistic, let whatever happens, happens. That's not, that's not the kind of biblical surrender here. These three young men are looking at the fire, and they're thinking about from their own experience, I've got to imagine, well, God couldn't save us from the city. But yet, their confidence is in something greater. Maybe their confidence, maybe they're thinking all the way back to when God delivered uh, uh, Jerusalem from the Assyrians or one generation prior. Maybe they're thinking about all going all the way back to the Exodus. Regardless of what they're remembering, their, their confidence in God's goodness is beyond their own experience. And sometimes when we're in that choice to surrender, you know, that, that idea of an active decision of saying, God, I wanted X to happen, but why is happening? To be able to speak that first, so powerful, to be able to authentically say, God, I, I desired X to happen, but it didn't happen, even if I'm going to worship you. That choice of surrender. And it's a, it's a, it's a daily thing. I, I've realized that the even if declaration isn't a one-time banner you raise up. It's, it's sort of these, these threads you pull across a tapestry that each moment you have the opportunity when reality does not meet what you had hoped for or what you believed God for, to be able to declare, yet I will still trust you. I will still believe in your goodness, and I will worship you. God's uh, trustworthiness and questioning whether or not God can be trusted, whether or not God can be trusted to be good, I think it's, I mean, that's that's the lie um, that the tempter sets before us in the very yes. beginning, right? Like, yes. God, you can't trust God. Um, right. God, you can't trust God to um, to do good, to be good. I mean, that's right. the you know, that's sort of the big lie that initiates the um, the whole fall of humanity. So let's talk about God's trustworthiness and God's plans versus you know our expectations of a quote unquote wonderful life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's and and those desires. Let's let's you know, Carmen. Let's make sure we we say it. Those desires are not bad things. Right to desire happiness, to desire uh, relationship, to desire even comfort; those are not bad things in and of themselves. It's when those desires calcify into these demands, where we begin to think and box in that God's goodness is solely defined by how He meets my checklist. This is when we begin to get into lies. We begin to live uh, these lies of, "Oh gosh, if if only I could." Or we'll tell ourselves, well, I should be something by now. I mean, that's a, that's a tell tale comment that we'll put in our head, knowing that you're comparing yourself to something that isn't what God has for you, what God is calling you to be. And so this idea of God's goodness, we have to come back. I mean, the testimony of Scripture is so crucial for this. You know, so I read, you know, I shepherd a lot of people who they have no idea what to do with the Old Testament. Right? Because they're just looking at it from the place of law, 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 law. And I'm saying, but if we look at some of these, these, I'm going through the book of Kings right now in my personal study. And if you look at the book of Kings, you see over and over again, over and over again, God's goodness and his mercy and his justice that comes in response to faithlessness or faithfulness. And we see God's goodness again and again and again and again. Well, that 
that witness, that testimony does something to remind me, oh, God has been good way before I came on the scene, way before my life was even a set of events. Like God has been good. And you go all the way back, you go to the heart of the gospel. You know, there's maybe some people listening right now and all their life has been just filled with pain. And they're, they're saying, gosh, like, how do I say that God is good? I say, increase your data sample. Go deeper into the, the, the cross of Christ. Because if there's doubt right now, maybe you're wrestling with cancer. Maybe you're battling a divorce right now. Maybe you've got wayward children right now. And everything is falling apart in your life. And you're saying, how can God be good? I'd say, go to, this, go to the cross. As we see that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Loved, demonstrated. And no matter what this life might bring to us, I don't say this glibly or to just, you know, just to uh, cast it aside. That, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But no matter what this life throws to us, we know that we are the beloved because God gave his son Jesus Christ for us. And that ultimately holds the even if declaration for our life. Mitchell, that is so good. Um, That is so good. If you're asking right now, you know, how could God be good or how could this be for my good? You know, how is God working out this for my good? Um, Increase your data sample. I love that. And get yourself to the foot of the cross. Like, right? We got to go to the foot of the cross every single day to, uh, to be in the right posture and in the right place um, where we can really receive what God is doing in the here and now, because the world and, and everything in it often bears testimony against the goodness of God in this present moment. And, you know, the darkness is dark and we see it in every direction. Um, But we're people of light. Like we recognize and acknowledge that light has shown in the darkness and the darkness is not going to overcome it. Like we, that is not, that is not fantasy. That is reality. Yes. Yes. And it's not a, now, I say it's an ambidextrous faith. It's holding the trouble in our right hand, of the trouble of the world in our right hand, and the goodness of God in our left hand. Right? We, we're not just saying, oh, there's really no trouble. God is just good. I think that's a, that's a naivety that doesn't really help us, nor does it help the people around us. But if we can hold both the trouble and say, yeah, this is really hard. This is really broken. This is really dark. Yet, yet, God is good. His goodness will hold me, and I know who I am. I am the beloved. I am the beloved. And and if we really think about it, Carmen, isn't that the real angst of any kind of suffering is what does this suffering say about who I am, meaning my worth? If, if I'm suffering with cancer, why did I get this cancer? And, and is that all I'm destined to be, a patient? Right? No, the, the cross speaks and says, no, 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 no. You are not defined by your cancer. You're defined as a son and daughter of the king who has cancer. And that deep understanding that, no, no, God knows me. He is with me. I find it very interesting in the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story that God doesn't save him from the fire. I mean, he could have. He could have just closed it out. He could have, you know, made it somehow that it doesn't catch on fire. I mean, if he can make, you know, wet wood catch on fire with Elijah, he could put out that furnace, but he doesn't, he doesn't save them from the fire. But Nebuchadnezzar's decree or his observation, he looks and he says, didn't we put in three? Why are there four? Mm. And isn't that, that's the promise, that God may not change your circumstances, but he will surely be present with you in it. And I believe that makes all the difference. 
as we close, um, I just I, that just whole thing just brought to mind. I mean, there was a comic. His name's Nor- Norm McDonald. He just died recently. He's a brother in the brother in the faith. And um, when asked once about you know the battle with cancer, he said it's not a battle with cancer. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in the end, it's a draw because when I die, the cancer dies as well. But mm-hmm. then I live, and That's so. Right. Right. So, you know, I think that, that this this concept of an ambidextrous faith is so helpful as well. There's ambidextrous grief. Right. Yes. That's, yes. That's where we live. Yes. It's so good. It's so good. Mitchell Lee, thank you so much. It's so good. It's a delight to be with you. The book is Even If Trusting God When Life Disappoints, Overwhelms or Just Doesn't Make Sense. We're giving away copies. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing. Mitchell, thank you and God bless. Thank you, Carmen. Blessings to you. We'll be right back. Oh, yeah. No, we won't be right back. I ate, I ate up the entire minute that we had to spend somewhere else. And so let's just spend it together. Um, thank you for spending this time this morning with me. Let me encourage you again to reach out to somebody that you know is, you know, uh, dealing with a fiery furnace in their own life, right? Where the expectations that they might have had for their good or for their life um, you know, are rubbing up against the reality of sin, fallenness, brokenness, addiction, loneliness, desperation, grief, anxiety, depression. I mean, the list is so long, right? Um, reach out today as a sister or brother in Christ. Let people know that they're not walking alone, that not only do they walk with Christ, but that we walk with one another in those seasons of, of great challenge and difficulty because we're people of light. Let the light shine. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.